Hello, and welcome to the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN, Malnutrition Awareness Week podcast on enteral nutrition in children with malnutrition. My name is Peggy Gunter from ASPEN, and today we are honored to have with us Dr. Melanie Newkirk. Melanie was previously the Director of Nutritional Services at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida, and is now with Timeless Medical. She's also an adjunct assistant professor for the Department of Clinical and Preventive Nutrition Sciences at Rutgers School of Health Professions. Next, we have Dr. Gina Rempel, who's from the Nutrition Support and Complex Care Department of Pediatrics and Children's Health at the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg, Shared Health in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And next, we have Kelly Kinnair, the Director of Development and Strategic Partnerships at Aspen and formerly the Clinical Nutrition Director for Option Care Health. This podcast is brought to you by Aspen and has been supported by Kate Farms. So I'd first like to start off with a case to help us illustrate the issues here. This is a case of an eight-year-old boy with a seizure disorder due to congenital brain disease. He has had decreasing cognitive function over the past year, is unable to ambulate, and his mother has been hand-feeding him soft foods. He has had weight loss and has been declining in the growth charts over the past three months. He has also been coughing with a low-grade fever, and his primary provider is concerned about aspiration pneumonia. He was admitted to the local hospital, where he underwent a swallowing evaluation, which was positive for aspiration. So, Melanie, you're called to see this patient in the hospital and asked to do a nutrition assessment, identify and document a nutrition diagnosis, and develop a plan of care. Can you walk us through that, please? Sure. Thank you, Peggy. So when we think about nutrition assessment for a patient such as the one in our case, we have to think about the different domains that we need to cover. Prior to seeing the patient, it's important to have a good understanding of the medical history, including use of various medications and any type of background on surgeries. As we progress through this case, we want to make sure that we understand a little bit about the family history, the social history, and then we're going to move into our actual information gathering to make an assessment. So when we have concerns about malnutrition, we know that Aspen and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics have a consensus statement in which there are multiple indicators that are used to identify pediatric patients with malnutrition or undernutrition. Growth parameters, including weight, length, or height, depending on the age, weight for length or body mass index, are all assessed using Z-scores, and clinicians should use the appropriate growth reference. In this case, we'd use the CDC comparative growth charts as this child is over two years of age. It's important to note, however, that with a child who has neurological impairment, an accurate height may be very difficult to obtain, and this can be due to things such as contractures or spasticity, and so that just might not be feasible. There are other ways to obtain a surrogate height, such as using knee height calipers and using other equations, but an accurate height may be difficult and may not always be available in this type of case. So in that instance, we can use other types of surrogate markers, such as a mid-upper arm circumference or even skid fold measurements. And again, we want to assess all types of anthropometric data using reference standards, such as Z-scores or percentiles in the absence of Z-scores. 
Nutrition-focused physical exam would be key to look for signs of fat loss or muscle wasting. And in the scenario of a child who could potentially be on various medications with limited intake, we would want to look for physical signs of potential micronutrient deficiencies. And Aspen has an excellent practitioner guide to nutrition-focused physical exam in infants, children, and adolescents that can help clinicians learn more about NFPE in pediatric patients. So food and nutrition intake is really key, and this would be obtained from the family in this case. We'd want to make sure that we find out about any supplements as well as complementary and alternative medicine use. Estimating energy needs and protein needs can be very challenging in children with neurological impairment. They may have decreased energy needs due to lower muscle tone, a decreased growth expectations, and lower energy expenditure with um, decreased movement. However, in conditions such as spasticity, we may see that energy needs are higher. So there's various different ways to think about energy assessment, whether it's using calories per centimeter of height if an accurate height is available, or using DRIs or the WHO equation as a starting point. So once all of the information is gathered to put together a thorough nutrition assessment, uh, we want to look for a diagnosis. Typically, there are going to be three domains that we'll consider for a nutrition diagnosis. They're based on either intake, clinical symptoms, or behavioral or environmental symptoms. And in this case, potential thoughts on a, a diagnosis would be potentially inadequate energy intake, it may be swallowing difficulties, or after our full nutritional assessment, we might have the presence of a malnutrition diagnosis. Okay, thank you so much. Gina, sometimes children like this case that we discussed are diagnosed with what's called failure to thrive. Can you tell us why that might not be the best diagnosis and how you teach your residents about diagnosing malnutrition in these children? Thanks, Peggy. When the residents call me for help with a child who has failure to thrive, I usually tell them I don't know what that means and ask them to be more specific because failure to thrive means so many things to different people. And I try to use the phone call with the residents as a teachable moment to talk to them about malnutrition because I need them to think about what's changed for this child. Why are they presenting with poor weight gain? And as Melanie has just gone over all the medications, the illness, have their feeders changed? What if their family decided to change the food completely because they've changed their own pattern of eating? I also want the residents to think about physical signs of malnutrition when they call me. What are the growth parameters? And I ask them, have you actually plotted them yourself or looked at the growth charts yourself? And I want to know whether or not the child has pressure sores or signs of micronutrient deficiency. I want them to think about that because there are, our residents often get spoiled in the hospital because they have access to clinical and nutrition specialists. And that sometimes takes their thinking away from the things that are really important for them to know as pediatricians. And knowing I'm going to ask about the growth charts, make sure that they're available to me when I get to the ward to actually see the child. In general, when they call me that they're worried about a child with, quote, failure to thrive. I actually don't get too nervous until I've about calling it malnutrition because until I've talked to the family, I've examined the child, I looked at the whole picture, I'm not too scared about them being so poorly nourished because I know that just plotting the children on standard growth charts doesn't mean malnutrition because their growth pattern and their body composition is going to be different than their age matched peers without neurological impairment. And I don't generally know what the height means 
when the resident calls me because I just don't know how it was taken. And as Melanie said, we need those segmental measures to get a little closer to where the heights actually are. I do worry that the child has malnutrition when the residents tell me that they have seizures or pressure sores because I know those are red flags for malnutrition. Those are some of the things in the history that are red flags. And we also know that if they have weight loss or complete plateauing of their growth parameters, like in the case that you presented us with, Peggy, that we do get a little bit more nervous. I also watch their Z scores very carefully and I want their weight for height better than minus two. And I also want their tricep skin fold and uh, mid-arm circumference to be above the 10th percentile for age. If I have those parameters, then I have a lot better idea whether or not that child has malnutrition. But as Melanie's already told us, it's trickier in these kids because we can't just use their BMI and say, this is malnutrition based on the who's Z-scores cut off, cutoffs for BMI. We need a lot more parameters and we need to examine and we need to measure the kids more before we call it malnutrition. Okay, thanks. You've seen this child that we discussed, and we have seen that they need long-term enteral nutrition. Can you walk us through the access needs and how you would plan for that in the short and the long-term? So I would first want to know what our nutrition goals are. If it's short-term, because in three weeks' time, this child is having a spinal fusion and their nutrition isn't optimal, and we know that optimizing nutrition before a big surgery is really important in children with neurological impairment, we may have to go for, for the option of nasogastric tube feeding. If we're talking about long-term general improvement in health and well-being and we have a little more time, we generally start introducing the concept of gastrostomy feeding for the child. We know that home nasogastric feeding becomes more challenging as the children get older because they are more resistant to reinsertion and perhaps they're more active and can dislodge the tube more easily than an infant who you might need to bundle. We know that means a lot of teaching and a lot of responsibility for the parents who need to make sure that that NG is actually safe. A lot of parents do opt for gastrostomy feeding from the get-go, but I, I know that it's not my decision. My job is to provide information so that the decision can be made collectively with, uh, with the family and with other team members. And even when the writing is on the wall for the parents, they often have a lot of uncertainty in making that decision about a change to enteral support. And if they do, then I generally pull out another tool in my toolkit, and that is using the CP growth charts by Brooks et al. from 2011. Because we know on those growth charts, if the child has CP, we can compare them to other children of the same sex, age, motor impairment, and tube feeding status. And unlike other growth charts, these are simply descriptive. We can't necessarily use them clinically because they haven't been clinically validated, but they do tell us when the children fall in a zone of concern for their weight for age and matched for the other parameters that we've talked about. If they're under the 20th percentile weight for age on these growth charts, we know they're at greater risk for morbidity and mortality based on their nutrition status alone. And sometimes that helps the parents understand the, uh, the severity of the situation. 
So even if they don't, it affords us an opportunity to talk to the parents about a need for an about face in their current nutrition plan. I always tell the parents that the GT is simply a tool that we need right now to facilitate nutrition fluids and likely medication administration as well if they're not getting enough. But it doesn't mean family mealtime needs to end. It just means that oral feeding is now for pleasure and not just for calories and that every bite doesn't count like it used to. I'm always honest with parents that there are potentially some problems associated with GT feeding, and it's not a miracle intervention, but it generally improves the child's weight and later on their height, and it generally decreases mealtime stress because we're no longer dependent on every bite. I also tell the parents from the get-go that the satisfaction with GT feeding is really high in parents after the children have the GT. And I always have GT in my pocket to show them what it's like and hopefully decrease their fears about it. Okay, thank you. Kelly, so you're from the home care company who's been asked to provide home enteral services for this patient and family. What are the first steps that you want to take to make that happen? And what can you do to get ready before the patient gets home? Great question. So I guess as far as first steps to make it happen, there's a couple of things we have to consider in patients discharging to the home setting on enteral nutrition. So I guess the really the first thing I would say is, you know, ensuring that this patient has met criteria, you know, for, for acceptance, acceptance criteria, essentially for home enteral nutrition. And so, you know, Aspen really does this very well in kind of laying that out for us, right? So making sure the home environment is clean and safe, making sure the patient has you know, access to refrigeration and a working telephone, right? So that they can make an emergency phone call when they need to, they can store their supplies. And it's really ultimately setting up the patient for success, also safety in providing the enteral nutrition. The second piece of that is obtaining all of the necessary documentation to verify coverage for home. Really, really important, right? Because if the enteral nutrition is not going to be covered, or if there's a portion of it that won't be covered, that could change the patient's discharge plan, right? So either if, if the enteral nutrition itself isn't covered, you know, is there somewhere else the patient can discharge to? If the formula isn't covered, is there something else we can provide the patient nutritionally that maybe is less costly out of pocket? And so oftentimes insurance needs, you know, a number of documents, but really kind of going back to those growth measures that we've talked about so far, that diagnosis that we've talked about so far. We need all of that clinical information to be able to submit along with those current enteral orders to be able to verify coverage for this patient. Also, I think it's really important to talk about the caregiver support and acceptance here, right? Because we're talking about a pediatric patient who is going to rely on caregiver to administer the feeding. So we need to make sure that they're accepting of this and that they're willing and able to do this in the home setting and that they're also able to be educated on the therapy itself. So then in terms of the second piece of the question, Peggy, that you asked, what can we do to get ready before the patient discharges home? There's a number of things that I've sort of seen, right? I, I worked both inpatient and outpatient, and the outpatient or the home care side is very 
different in terms of how we prescribe in the hospital is often very different than how we prescribe or how we write orders in the home setting. So what's really important here as we're getting ready for discharge is transitioning the patient to a regimen that works for them in the home setting. We have to remember that there's life going on around them at home, rather than having a nurse administered enteral nutrition regimen in the hospital where there's always a nurse there, maybe there's not always that ability in the home. So, you know, make sure that really the feeding regimen is practical for the home setting to set that patient up for success. So the more we complicate that feeding regimen, the harder it's going to be to provide for that caregiver. And then the greater chance we see of patient non-adherence. Um, and I've seen some really complicated regimens with lots of additives and modulars and right, lots of mixing and measuring, and we have to make it as simple as possible, again, for optimal success and safety. So if we have a patient who's receiving, you know, um, maybe in the hospital that we made it exactly even because that's how we like to write things, you know, 72 milliliters of formula every, you know, let's say, eight hours, well, that may not be something that the caregiver can measure at home. So is there, is there a better measurement? Can we round the 72 to 75? That sort of a thing, right? We have to remember of what sort of household measures they're going to be able to, to utilize in the home setting. The other piece to the enteral nutrition order in terms of preparation for discharge that often is forgotten are the fluids and the water flushes. So when we see a patient in the hospital getting IV fluids and they're ready to discharge, oftentimes those IV fluids are discontinued and not always converted to water flushes. So again, we're, we're setting this patient up for dehydration and especially the pediatric patient who can't verbalize thirst to us. We have to look for other signs and symptoms of dehydration. So it's really, really important to make sure that those free water flush orders get added to that discharge enteral order or at least converted prior to discharge. So IV fluids taken down free water flushes added to the regimen so we know that the patient can handle all of that enteral volume. And then really the last thing, which I'm sure Melanie will get into as well, is really just making sure that we've educated properly prior to discharge and not just on the therapy itself and administration, but also the goals and the reasons that they're on enteral nutrition and potentially, as Gina mentioned, how long the patient might require so that we're sort of giving our expectations and again, setting that patient up for success. Ideally, that, that caregiver should be trained in the hospital and should be able to do it in the hospital before the patient discharges. If there are multiple caregivers involved, it's ideal that all involved will be able to be there to learn and provide that return demonstration. Again, just the, the, the most important thing so that we can see that they're able and willing to administer it before that patient goes home. And then really the last thing I think is is extremely important, especially in today's world, is making sure that the supplies and formula are available before that patient goes home. So if there's any specialized formula that needs to be ordered that has a bit of a turnaround time, it's important to know that now rather than sending that patient out and realizing it's going to be several days before the formula arrives. You know, are there any specialty supplies that that patient needs that, again, are a, a special order and aren't a one-day sort of an order turnaround time? Because the last thing you want to do is send the patient home before the supplies arrive and realize that, you know, you don't have what you need available. Okay, great, great tips. Melanie, what are just a few 
important things from the inpatient side that you need to communicate to that home care company? Is there anything that Kelly has not touched upon? Well, I think Kelly has been very thorough when talking about preparing patients such as our case to come home on enteral nutrition. And I just really want to reiterate what she said about considering a home schedule that is conducive to the family's lifestyle and even considering things such as the school schedule, therapy appointments, all need to be part of the consideration. From the clinical side, as an inpatient pediatric dietitian, you know, we should um, have already established fluid goals that are appropriate for the patient enterally, along with a feeding plan that may include bolus feeds that are the most physiologic and that the timing is appropriate for the family. Part of our nutrition assessment may have indicated micronutrient deficiencies, perhaps a physical exam indicated concerns, and then follow-up labs were done. So communication to the home care company really needs to be, what are we providing for the feeding selection, whether it's formula or other types of enteral nutrition that may be provided. We want to communicate what the enteral water flushes will be, as well as any types of other supplementation. And the other thing that is really critical is to make sure that there's appropriate follow-up for home once this patient is discharged to monitor growth patterns. Since we are using estimates of energy needs, we know that these types of patients can rapidly gain weight after a G2 placement. So we want to make sure the family knows what our growth goals are. And Gina talked a lot about what, from a medical standpoint and a nutritional standpoint, we want to see these patients achieve. But we want to make sure that's been communicated to the family and that we have appropriate follow-up scheduled. So whether it's an appointment with the outpatient dietitian in a month so that we can address growth velocity, make sure the home feedings are tolerated and that um, hydration status is maintained. Any changes that we want to make in the regimen should be communicated to the home care company so that they're aware, whether it's a change in the amount of feedings, whether it's a formula change, that's all critical. I think the other thing that is important through this transition from hospital to home, Kelly pointed out the need for the appropriate equipment and having the family practice while in the hospital. Oftentimes, hospitals have different enteral pumps than the home care company will use. So um, the dietitian, I believe, can facilitate through the case management to the home care company about getting that equipment delivered early so that the parents can practice in the hospital situation. So that is also going to be key. I think the dietitian can also really help with procuring formula if there's going to be any type of state funding or referral to an agency such as WIC. The diet for children who are under five years of age, um, the inpatient dietitian should help to facilitate that. And that can also be communicated to the home care company so they know what things have already been done and put into place so that, again, we can help to just facilitate and make that transition easier for the family. Now, Gina, now that the patient's at home, can you tell us how you manage them as outpatients from a clinical perspective? Well, if we have such good handover as Melanie and Kelly have described to us, we're really in luck. And, and at our hospital, we try to make sure that our outpatient program starts when the children are still inpatient. And we make sure that we have the good handover between the dietitians in an outpatient feeding therapist and the physicians who are doing in an outpatient feeding service so that the children don't fall between the cracks. And we try to make sure everybody gets a phone call within 48 hours because we have so many children who live far away that we wanna make sure that they have everything they need and that they don't have questions. And when we initiated this 48 hour phone call, 
we noticed that our emergency room visits dropped off significantly. So we've continued to do that now for more than a decade. And we make sure that we have an in-person visit or if they're really, really far away, we do it as a virtual visit because we serve kids who are quite far away from our hospital and we try to make sure they're troubleshooting. And as Melanie said, this is really important in kids with neurological impairment because the orthopedic team does not is not happy if their standards and their custom wheelchairs don't fit because they've had such rapid weight gain from the time they've had their tube till they're seen again. So we do the two-week follow-up and, and then again at eight weeks, we bring them in to teach them how to change the GT tube. We always wait till the eight-week mark. Prior to that, it would be changed by surgery or IR in the hospital. But the eight-week visit takes on special significance because we want to make sure we have good anthropometrics because we know they'll be done on a different scale than in the hospital. And we want to make sure we have a segmental height, which we do in clinic, and the hospital's not always able to. And at that point, we're starting to look at whether or not that height Z score is better than the, the minus two and the tricep skin fold and, and mid-upper arm circumference are starting to creep above the 10th percentile. And looking at weight gain velocity, I know it's primarily done in children under two, but there is some usefulness in looking at it uh, from the time of hospital discharge because we know that over age one, we probably don't need to see more than seven grams of weight gain a day. As Melanie said, we're looking at protein, fluid, and micronutrients as well, and comparing to what the child is getting to what they had in the hospital, because sometimes they're feeling a lot better by the eight-week mark, and their oral intake may have changed, and we may have to adjust the tube feeding. In those first eight weeks, feeding intolerance and skin problems, especially with hypergranulation tissue, mechanical problems with tube, and the dislodgement prior to stoma maturity are, are our biggest challenges, and our nurse would get a lot of uh, phone calls about that. At the eight-week mark, we also do an evaluation of the oral feeding because for many parents, this still remains a priority even after they have a G-tube. And many of the parents at that eight-week visit ask us what our exit strategy is, how we're going to get rid of the tube because some of them haven't quite bought in yet. And perhaps, although it's a little bit more unusual in children who have neurological impairment, but perhaps there is an exit strategy and we can have parameters for that. And after that, for Small children who are growing really fast, we tend to follow them up monthly after they've had their G2 until they have a stable weight gain trajectory. And we try to follow with the pediatricians. But as I said, many of our children live really remotely and they don't have as good access to medical services as they would if they live in an urban center. For older children, we follow them less frequently, but we see them at least annually when their tube feeding needs have been established. And again, they get annual anthropometrics and ensure that their supplies and their nutritional intake are adequate. And that's also our opportunity to do some laboratory evaluation. We know that surprisingly, despite the fact that we've been tube feeding kits for a long time and collectively, we still don't know exactly what parameters we should be checking in, in these children, but we at least check their micronutrients, especially iron, calcium, and vitamin D, because of course, children with neurological impairment who aren't weight-bearing and if they're on multiple anticonvulsants are at pretty high risk of osteopenia. 
We check their other micronutrients too, along with the blood count and electrolytes and markers for renal and liver function and try to adjust their feeding according to that. But in general, the, once they're established, the annual visits generally meet the teams and the family's needs with some phone calls and some check-ins with the dietitians in between. Great, thank you. So for our last question, Kelly, from the home care perspective, can you tell us how to manage these patients at home? In particular, talk about the coverage and reimbursement issues, both short-term and long-term, and particularly in terms of this label of failure to thrive. Sure, yeah. So in terms of monitoring, these patients are usually monitored monthly in the home setting. That typically coordinates with their 30-day shipment of formula and supplies. And so prior to the next shipment, you know, they're asked a series of questions through that monthly contact. And at that point, data is usually collected on things like feeding, tolerance, uh, adherence, and growth, especially in these pediatric patients. And so if their growth goals aren't being met, or if the patient isn't tolerating their feeding or they're not adherent, typically the patient's clinical team would be contacted at that point for additional support and, and possible follow-up. So, you know, the primary care team may want to bring the patient into clinic for further assessment or monitoring based on, you know, things that are going on in the home setting. And certainly the home care company isn't going to want to continue to deliver formula and supplies if there's any, you know, growth issues, tolerance issues, or non-adherence. So we've got to, you know, make sure we follow up and check in on that patient and, you know, revise any orders that we need to before we continue to, to deliver those supplies. In terms of the reimbursement issue question, Peggy, um, yeah, I've definitely seen my fair share of reimbursement issues. I've seen my fair share of patients with that failure to thrive diagnosis. As most of you know, I think you know, we're seeing insurance coverage get a little bit more difficult. We're seeing some you know, insurance providers looking at formula more as a grocery item. Certainly, we're seeing others require more and more clinical documentation to substantiate that diagnosis. Really, in my experience, as long as we have a valid diagnosis and good clinical documentation, the coverage is almost never an issue. But it really starts there and kind of back to the beginning of the conversation and where we started talking today is really just, again, appropriately diagnosing these patients, documenting well, and then again, we're setting up that patient for success, you know, and successful coverage at home. We have brought that term up, failure to thrive a couple of times today, and it's I think, you know, it's an antiquated term um, now replaced with something we, that's termed faltering growth, but it, it still is not really something we should be using in terms of a enteral nutrition diagnosis. Oftentimes there is something else going on with the, with the child that is causing the faltering growth. We're starting to see, as we've had this discussion today, starting to see that term used interchangeably with malnutrition. Malnutrition is a much better diagnosis, even though there is an ICD-10 code for failure to thrive. It's, again, still not something we should be using as a primary diagnosis for these patients, especially if we're trying to obtain coverage for enteral nutrition. So I always think of it as, as almost like using that term anorexia in an adult patient. 
you know, failure to thrive in a child. Well, what is causing them to fail to thrive? What is causing the, the faltering growth? There is a better diagnosis in the situation. And the point of our of our case study today, it's the neurological development issues that are causing it. And then that should really be that primary diagnosis that we, you know, submit to insurance for coverage. I've seen the diagnosis of failure to thrive get covered. And then once that child hits the age of two, we start seeing denials come through. So some insurances have sort of an age cutoff with certain diagnoses, but you know, I think in this particular case, if we use the right one of what is that underlying condition, um, you know, this child's neurological issues, we can certainly still put in that, that malnutrition diagnosis in there. I think that's very important to still add as a good secondary diagnosis. You know, certainly you can have a couple of diagnoses that you, you know, you submit when, you know, when you're obtaining authorization from insurance, but the one you put first is the most important one. And that should be the reason that that child is receiving or requires enteral nutrition. So sometimes it, it, it makes us stop for a moment and think, okay, failure to thrive or malnutrition. That's not why, I mean, it is why we're giving enteral nutrition, but we have to think of the reason for the malnutrition first. And just remember to kind of order them in that way, right? Because the diagnosis is important, but in terms of insurance coverage, the order of them is also very important. Something I, I didn't know when I worked inpatient before I worked in the home care setting. The other thing that we see too is talking about more of the long-term reimbursement issues. It's really important to continue to document in the patient's record, as you're following up with this patient, the continued need for enteral nutrition at each visit, you know, so if it's a, the annual visit or the six month, you know, however frequently you're seeing these patients, typically insurance will require updated clinical information on a fairly frequent basis. So when you're applying for reauthorization for, you know, coverage of enteral nutrition, oftentimes you need to tag on updated clinical documentation. So they just need to see that this patient still requires enteral nutrition to continue covering it. And so sometimes it seems obvious why the child still requires enteral nutrition, but it should still be documented with each annual visit so that you're, again, really ensuring that that patient will have continued coverage and not run into, you know, any of these reimbursement issues in the home setting. Thank you. Thanks to all for listening to this podcast. Also, much appreciation to our speakers for sharing their thoughts today with our Aspen audience. Our appreciation goes out to Kate Farms for support of this podcast. Have a good day.